I had this experience of feeling at one with the universe and I saw these stars and this was just a couple months ago and I knew in that moment that all the stars were living beings who had passed and that one of the stars was my grandfather hmm. and after I was coming out uh, Dr. Randy our, our director of consciousness he said well how's he doing is he okay I said yeah my grandpa's okay Hello, everyone, and welcome to Field Tripping. Today, we have an incredibly special guest with us, Dr. Mike Dow, a New York Times bestselling author and also a field trip therapist. But before we get into the conversation with Mike, we wanted to give you an update and provide you with some news to trip over, some information about recent developments in psychedelics and, and mental health, uh, so you can be apprised of everything that's going on in the world in this incredibly exciting sphere. Uh, so first up, one piece of news is that cancer patients in the U.S. are increasingly seeking access to psilocybin under the U.S. Right to Try Act, a law that allows people with life-threatening conditions to use drugs that may not that may help but have not been approved by the FDA. Psilocybin is one such drug. The DEA has rejected patient applications to date based on the Controlled Substances Act, which lists psilocybin as a Schedule One drug, but a lawsuit, which were actually indirectly supporting through field trip, has now been filed against the agency to enable access. So it's a very exciting development, and in fact, I believe eight district attorneys in the U.S. are supporting the lawsuit, so there's a lot of momentum here. On the scientific front, researchers at Washington University in St. Louis and the University of Toronto have found that the experience of awe, which is defined as novelty and vastness, is shown to make us happier and contribute to greater life satisfaction, to make us care more about other people, and to increase our humility. This research has shown that awe can make us think more critically, expand our perception of time, and let lead to less materialism. The reason this is so interesting in my mind is because the experience of awe is one of the common experiences in psychedelics, that people after a psychedelic experience have a deeper connection to the profound. And I think so much of the value of a psychedelic experience can be found in that. And now we're seeing scientific evidence to support that independent of psychedelics, but certainly it seems relevant for the overall emergence of psychedelic therapies. Secondly, a research study showed that different people have different capacities to metabolize LSD. Poor metabolizers, people who have non-functional CYP2D6 enzymes, experience longer and more intense psychedelic effects than metabolizers with functional CYP2D6 enzymes. As we get more data, pharmacogenetic tests prior to psychedelic experiences will likely become more important to determine an individual's ideal drug dose. In fact, personally, uh, we invested in a company that has been doing genetic tests specific to cannabis use in a person's metabolism for cannabis, but they are now expanding that to include metabolism of psychedelics. Classical psychedelics activate the serotonin receptor known as 5-HT2A to exert their effects. Some molecules that look very similar to psychedelics activate the same or similar receptors but lack psychedelic effects have recently been synthesized. One of these molecules, which I'm going to mispronounce entirely, uh, 
Tabernath, I don't know, Mike, can you pronounce that one for me? I don't know if you know that. Tabernathalog <laughs> has shown promise in animal models of depression and addiction. Uh, a new study in mice demonstrates that it may also be able to combat negative effects of stress. So with all that said, today joining us on the podcast is Dr. Michael Dow, psychotherapist and New York Times bestselling author. Inspired by his brother who suffered a massive stroke when he was just 10 years old, an experience I can't possibly imagine, and, and I really don't want to bring up, bring up past traumas, but I'm, I'm really curious to understand the experience a lot more. Dr. Mike has made his personal mission to help others in their quest for health and happiness. Well known as America's go-to doctor, Dr. Mike has hosted shows on TLC, VH1, E, Investigation, Discovery, and Logo, and is part of Dr. Oz's core team of experts. He has admirably brought consciousness expansion and mindfulness to the forefront of mainstream culture, and we are excited to discuss his unique background and wisdom in psychopharmacology, clinical hypnosis, and the importance of psychedelic-assisted therapy. Mike, thank you for joining us today, and welcome to Field Tripping. Ronan, thank you so much for having me. I am delighted to be here on the podcast. It's awesome to have you. I mean, uh, for everybody who's listening, Mike joined us. I don't know how long has it been now. I've lost all sense of time and frame in this universe, but six it's months? somebody it's, was asking. I think about six months. Yeah. Wow. And uh, all right. So how, how's it been? Give a, give us some real feedback so far. Uh, it has been absolutely life changing. It is everything that I hoped it would be. As you know, I stalked field trip because I had a colleague who is one of your uh, heads uh, in Toronto. And, you know, after hearing her experience, I stalked you guys, I begged for the job. <laughs> and I, it has honestly exceeded my expectations. Sitting in the field trip clinic in Santa Monica, helping patients through this journey, it is talking about all, it is awe-inspiring. I just, uh, the other day, I remember seeing this look of awe on one of the patient's face uh, in her first medicine session. So it's just... It is awe-inspiring. I'll say that. That's awesome. Th thank you for sharing that. Uh, I'm glad the experience has been positive for you. But before we get there, uh, in every podcast, I love to learn about a person's path, how you got to this particular moment where you get to talk face-to-face -face with my ugly face uh, about all things psychedelic. So uh, take, me, take me on your journey uh, and please share with us uh, about that experience being a kid um, and having your brother suffer a massive stroke, which I, I can't even possibly yeah. imagine, but it sounds like it had a, so, a major impact, but maybe in a good way in some ways too. I think so. You know, I think like all of the people who come to us at Field Trip, with every post-traumatic stress disorder, there is also post-traumatic growth. And I can certainly say that the traumas that I went through and my brother went through certainly colored who I am. It made me uh, more compassionate. It, it sort of birthed the seed in me and when I was just in high school and I knew that I wanted to help other people. And I was also so fascinated with the brain's ability to, to heal. So, you know, my brother had a, a truly massive stroke, so massive that the doctors told us when he was 10 years old that you're going to have to put him in a nursing home for the rest of his life Jesus. and he's not going to be able to be functional. Well, I can tell you today that my brother walks, talks, 
drives, is in a relationship, uh, has traveled the world. And so he really exceeded people's expectations. And I credit my father, um, who was uh, a physician uh, working primarily uh, at the end of his career before he passed uh, for the VA hospitals, uh, taking care of veterans in the United States. And, you know, he really made sure my brother was getting high dose fish oil and a lot of things and a lot of experimental therapies at the time. So isn't it so interesting that some of the things that my father was helping my brother with that I witnessed and I saw my brother exceed expectations when they told him and my family, there's nothing you can do or not much you can do. That sounds very similar to a lot of people who come to us with these mental illnesses and they say, well, my, my so-and-so, you know, whatever the provider was, told me that's about all I can do for you, right? But they still want more. They still want more relief. They still want more peace. They want more happiness. They want the panic attacks to stop. They want to be able to sleep well. They want to feel good. So I feel like that experience really shaped me. So, of course, sure. I became – I got my master's and then my doctorate. Um, you know, I had a private practice, psychotherapy doing – and then TV called about, oh, gosh, 10 years ago. And then I started doing books. But then, um, so I, I trained in just about everything. And then I needed some continuing education for my license. And I saw this thing about clinical hypnosis, right? I'm like, well, okay, it was the uh, American Society for Clinical Hypnosis. They tr it's sort of like the training center for mental health professionals who want to integrate this altered state, this non-ordinary state of consciousness called clinical hypnosis. Well, I flew to Austin, Texas for this. I think it was like a beginning track was like four days or something. And frankly, I didn't really believe in hypnosis. I frankly just picked it because I needed hours and my best <laughs> friend lived in Austin. So I wanted nice. to go somewhere, right? So, and then day one, we had to hypnotize each other. So I'm with this doctor and, you know, um, this person is hypnotizing me. And I fell so deep into trance like that and it was beyond anything I'd ever experienced. I'd done mindfulness meditation for 10,000 plus hours. I used to teach mindfulness meditation two classes a week in the evenings and it was like, what was that? And I knew that the healing potential was great. So, you know, that was, so then I wrote a book about hypnosis, your subconscious brain can change your life. And then of course, the next logical step was, well, this non, -or and then I used it in my practice. So I'm, I'm healing trauma, depression, PTSD with this new bag of tricks that I had within the clinical hypnosis realm. And then my partner, who's an ER doctor, and I looked at this training, this ketamine-assisted psychotherapy training. And I thought, well, this is sort of the next logical step. I had no idea what to expect. And I can tell you, my partner and I were sitting in a room, and coincidentally, the universe was speaking. The training was, again, in Austin, Texas. Uh, so we're there for, I think, five days in a room with 30 MDs and PhDs. And it was so life-changing. It was, you know, if, if talk therapy is, you know, uh, a three, hypnosis can take you in terms of awe and wonder in this non-ordinary non state of consciousness to a six. Well, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy takes it to about a, on a scale of one to 10, a 126, right? So <laughs> Not it, 127, but 126. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 126. And the things that I was hearing other people say, my own personal experience, um, experiencing ego death and how that changed everything, even today, you know, the way I see the world, the way I interact with others, hearing some of the things in that training, you know, I remember this one MD, she was probably, I don't know, in her 50s. And she said, I think in this session today, after, you know, 30 years of therapy, I think I just forgave my biological mother for giving me up for adoption. 
Wow. And I was like, what is, what is this medicine? What is, what is this journey when you combine the power of, of therapy with this incredible medicine? I heard another uh, practitioner say that her, her husband, and she was pretty young, her husband, she must have been probably, you know, 30s, 40s, her husband suddenly died of a heart attack two years before, was in weekly psychotherapy, and she said, this two-hour journey was as effective as, you know, I think 100 sessions of talk therapy. And I'm not talking, I'm not taking away from talk therapy because there's a time and a place. And actually the work that we do at Field Trip deepens traditional cognitive behavioral talk therapy. And that's, and that's wonderful. Uh, but for certain people and for certain conditions, uh, I have now personally seen how we at Field Trip are, are really digging deep, 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 the layers and layers. So if you look at the negative thoughts that we address with cognitive behavioral therapy, we are digging a hundred layers deeper to say, where did that come from? Where did that start? Um, so that's my journey, and I, I, I could not be happier. Cool. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, I have some deeper questions and, and some more fun questions, but I know in your bio, you're also a clinical sexologist or practice clinical sexology, and I have absolutely no idea yeah. what that is or how what that entails. So would you mind sharing that? And then I really want to ask more questions about like the experience of, of your brother's stroke and, and all that kind of stuff. Cause I'm just deeply curious about it and, and for some personal parallels, but uh, let's start with clinical sexology. What exactly is that? Yeah. So it's basically my training to also be a sex therapist. You know, I'm a person of color. My dad is, uh, was born in South Korea. He immigrated to this country. I'm also a gay man. So, you know, I, I feel like uh, my my sexology training, and that, by the way, is actually my second doctorate. I first got a PsyD in, in psychology and then a PhD in sexology, um, and really working with a lot of transgender patients, a lot of non-binary patients, and really helping people to color with every color in that Crayola box their life, uh, and, and really helping people with you know all sorts of uh, different disorders uh, when it relates to sex uh, fetishes, um, incorporating those into their sex life and how that can be a, a part of people's healing as well. Okay. Interesting. I, uh, I honestly knew nothing about it and, and clearly as evidenced by my question, I didn't take it with the gravity that it, it sounds like it very much deserves. Sometimes it's so easy to have a very you know, heteronormative white male perspective on things. And, and so I, I thought it would be something a lot more have a lot more levity to it, but it does sound actually profoundly quite serious. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah um, uh, that's amazing. Um, uh, I'm curious, to, uh, we'll come back to that, but take me back to when you were, you know, a kid and, and particularly I'm, I'm curious to know that when you had your first ketamine session and I assume, but I don't know that you've had subsequent experiences with it outside of training, but you can clarify that. Did any of that yep. stuff come up? You know, I, my, my wife, Stephanie, uh, her sister, uh, when Stephanie was, I think about 18 had a, a brain tumor, uh, and it, you know, was removed and her sister's alive and, and doing well. And, you know, there are some consequences uh, as a result of it, but, you know, Steph every once in a while, it's pretty open about how probably a lot of her late teenage rebellion may have been triggered by the trauma, the the trauma and the stress that probably at the time she wasn't aware of in terms of the depth of how much it affected her. I mean, obviously you know there's a lot yeah. of concern and, and stress going on, but the depth of it is is probably still coming to light. And and so I'm curious to know 
you know, through your ketamine experiences or otherwise, have you been able to unpack that and, and see beyond the inspiration that clearly your father, who sounds like he was an amazing figure in, in this experience, um, brought, you know, how, how did it affect you and how did it change your perspective on the world and how you view yourself? That is a great question. And I will say absolutely 100% it, it, it came up. So it came up in a rather indirect way. Um, and by the way, the other profound experience that I had this year, um, losing my grandfather to COVID, um, that also came up in a, in a recent uh, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy session that I personally had. And I, I think it comes up in a, you know, if talk therapy is using the left hemisphere and logic and how do I make sense of that, right? I feel like that's a very talk therapy way to process trauma. Um, ketamine kind of accesses things in a very different way, I think a more feeling way. Um, so one of the experiences I had, uh, the ego death and feeling at one with all living creatures and knowing not, not a, not a, well, somebody told this to me, so I believe it to be true knowing, but an experiential knowing, uh, that it's really hard to put into words. Um, I, I really got this sense that, oh, our bodies are simply garages for our souls. And I, I had that spiritual experience and I, and I think I also, there are a lot of images and, and um, metaphors that were very visual. So, you know, the love of a mother and my brother and I, and now my partner and all of the love in the world, um, I could sort of, I was in it and I felt it. And that sort of in this indirect way helped me to come to terms uh, with my trauma and, and how that shaped me and my attachment style um, in, in my family as a child and then later in life in my romantic relation, re relationships and even my friendships. And then also, you know, I think this is a really sort of more direct example. I had this experience of feeling at one with the universe and I saw these stars and this was just a couple months ago. And I knew in that moment that all the stars were living beings who had passed and that one of the stars was my grandfather. Hmm. And after I was coming out, uh, Dr. Randy, our, our director of consciousness, he said, well, how's he doing? Is he okay? I said, yeah, my grandpa's okay. So isn't it so interesting that that feeling in that one moment was like, oh, that sort of healed and, and helped me to grieve in a way that is so, so different than traditional talk therapy. And again, and, and then of course I could take that to a talk therapy session as you and I are talking about it now, but I think it's a good example to see and to understand how ketamine assisted psychotherapy works in a very, very different, deeper, more experiential way than any other therapy I think we have on the face of the planet. Yeah, uh, that, that totally resonates with me. Um, you know, I, I like to, I came up with a term, maybe I'm not so creative, maybe some people have come up with this before, but uh, the idea of effing the ineffable, right? Like, how do we give context to, for people, like people who haven't had these experiences? It's like these words are generally inadequate at, at expressing it, you know, the, the, the feelings of it, right? And I just recently did a, yeah. a session with uh, Irwin, who I work with, Um no psychedelics involved. This was just a session. I was talking about a very bizarre dream uh, that I, I had. And he was like, oh yeah, there was probably, you know, that, that girl from, from your grade school. 
And I'm like, I didn't say that. How did you know that? And that's just kind of Erwin. He can pick that stuff up. Um, but like yeah, yeah. the emotion associated with it, it's like just in the re-feeling of it. He talked about this idea of remembering not being this idea of recalling a fact, but literally being putting back together. If you think about what dismembering is, remembering is is the put back together. So those pieces of that you that got lost either through childhood trauma or otherwise, this whole process of remembering, it's not a logical thing. It, it comes through those deep emotions, those experiences that are quite literally ineffable. Um, and, it, and it sounds um, yeah. like you, you've had that experience. And, and one of the things, I, I mean, Randy is fantastic. And, and for the listeners, uh, Dr. Randy is our medical director for our Santa Monica clinic, as well as uh, our director of consciousness at Field Trip. And it takes someone who's got a special characteristic to look at you and and say in all seriousness, like, how did it feel to see your grandfather up there? Because for most people in this Western world, it's like, ah, it's a nice idea. But my guess is, and what I'm picking up from you is that this isn't an idea. This was very real for you. You know, it wasn't just this abstract concept, but real. And that's what what moves it. And and I think that's really special. How How do you, I mean, it sounds like you're pretty open to this, but how do you deal with those awe moments? Have you ever struggled as a as a clinical therapist, you know, trained in a modern Western scientific perspective, incorporating those experiences of awe or dealing with patients who have those? And was there ever any challenges with that? Or is it something that came pretty naturally to you? I think I've always been that sort of right-brained, you know, my Myers-Briggs type is an ENFJ. I am open. Uh, I love new experiences. I love sensation. I'm a bit of a sensation seeker. I'm a very spiritual um, human being. When I had my, uh, when my buddy, Dr. Amen, scanned my brain, he told me that I have a God spot, uh, which uh, they, it's been uh, published in research that people who have these deep spiritual beliefs, you can actually see it in their brain, but then it's sort of the what came first, the chicken or the egg uh, question. So I think it's always been there. So, you know, I use a lot of these very dry models, uh, but I've like cognitive behavioral therapy, which, you know, is, is sort of in 2021 still the gold standard. But I have to tell you, the, the downfall is if that's all you're trained in, it feels very rote and mechanical and logical. And when you have a condition like depression or you're grieving or you're starting over after a divorce, you know, I don't think you can have a full whole person centered way of healing without incorporating the spiritual. So, you know, earlier on in my career, I got trained in a lot of mindfulness based therapies like DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, um, MBCT, mindfulness based cognitive therapy, which sort of weaves CBT with mindfulness practices. Um, so I think I've always been that. And I think the people who see me know that about me and that's why they, they come back to me because they somehow find that really rewarding. Uh, but I think if we, as scientists, as doctors, clinicians, researchers, I think we have to acknowledge that we are spiritual beings. So one of the assessments that is used in research with uh, psychedelic, ex- uh, psychedelic assisted psychotherapies is that mystical experiences scale. And, you know, what is the correlation with having that all inspiring experience or mystical experience uh, with happiness or negatively correlated with depression, anxiety, PTSD. Um, One of my favorite quotes was one of the 
subjects in the psilocybin study who was a hardcore atheist who said, I felt bathed in, I'm going to, generally this is what I think she yeah. said, I, I felt bathed or held um, in the love of God. And somebody said to her, but you're an atheist. She said, I know, <laughs> that's, <laughs> but that's somehow the only way I can describe it. And and to me, I was like, oh, that is such a great story. And, and, and that I think is why we help our patients who come to field trip field trip to us around the world to actually get better in a really deep and profound way. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think that's amazing. I'm going to ask what may sound like a glib question, but I, I think it's important. And I'm just, I'm, I'm really riffing off questions because you're a therapist and I've never really sat down and had a conversation on kind of an intellectual level with a therapist about all the work you do and how it works and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I, I know this seems glib, but two of the big reasons that I feel like people may be resistant to therapy. And, and the thing that excites me so much about psychedelics is not so much um, the profound results that we're seeing, which are amazing and, and fantastic, but rather they are what I believe will be the springboard to open people up to their emotions, to spirituality, all these kind of things. You don't need psychedelics to do that. They're just a very effective tool. But the, the real goal is kind of that last piece, open people up. But a lot of people I know are very resistant to that. And so uh, one question I have is like, what is the purpose of of therapy, you know, when you kind of really drill down, if you're going to sell me like on therapy, whether it's psychedelic assisted therapy or otherwise, what is the purpose of it? Because I know, at least for me, even it comes up still is that like, it feels like a never ending process, right? Like that's one of the big things. It's not like a, a conventional medical treatment where there's metrics and results that are very easy to delineate and communicate. It just feels like you're kind of on this long road and, um, that's that's a big challenge and and because of that and because people are not necessarily sure what the purpose is like is the purpose to find happiness is the purpose to find you know relief is the purpose to end suffering is it all of them is it none of them and these are questions that often don't get discussed i don't think in terms of oh you should see a therapist why? What, what, what's the purpose? I mean, on, on some levels, it becomes an existential question of like, why are we here on earth in the first place? What's the purpose of life? Um, and I think it ties into that, but I'm curious to know how you'd answer that question. I think therapy is connection and caring. And it's interesting to think back uh, hundreds of years before therapy was a profession. How did we get caring and connection when we lived, you know, let's go back thousands of years when we lived in you know, first small villages and, and for that tribes, it, it was not a quote profession. It is a fundamental part of the human experience. Right. So if you have somebody who, you know, in an object relations, uh, psychotherapy model would function as a surrogate caretaker and the relationship you have with your therapist is, is somehow, uh, helping you to form a, a better attachment because you didn't have that. Or in CBT, it's sort of more like the therapist is the expert and the teacher and, and the scientist helping you to, uh, identify, um, negative thoughts and correct them by talking back to them. But across all therapies, it's about a relationship of caring and trust, which is why I think it works, right? Don't we all want to be cared for? Don't we all want to be listened to? Don't we all want to say that the way I'm feeling is valid and to have insight and to drill down? Shouldn't we give ourselves that gift? And isn't it fundamental to the human experience? Are you going to, on your deathbed, regret not doing that extra two hours of work from you know Tuesday from 5 to 7 p.m.? 
or you're probably never going to regret that. But if you go through your entire life without leaving for, for work and, and maybe going to a, a therapy appointment and you discover something about yourself, something that maybe you forgot um, and you feel this, this real connection, I, I, I do feel in some way, I mean, in another way, not, but in some way that all the patients that I've ever treated it, in some ways are, are sort of like children. <laughs> I form, most of my people have been with me uh, for, for years. Some of them have been with me for over a decade. I would say most of them. And I, you form these long-term bonds and you, you know, you get this sensation of I'm cared for. I'm not alone in the world. Um, a lot of people come to me in the highs and the lows of their life. They don't come to see me every week, but certainly I get a text or a call uh, when they lose somebody. So I, I am that guy for these people. And you, you simply know that you are cared for and not alone. And that I think is what therapy is truly all about. Yeah. No, as soon as you started answering the question, what, what came up for me uh, was being able to be yourself and not be in fear of judgment, you know, and almost every other relationship in yeah. your life, there's a, there's a fear of judgment. Um, uh, it's less so, you know, with sort of a, a mother and child, but, um, in almost every other relationship and, and even with mother, you know, the mother child relationship, it, it's hard, right? Cause you don't want to disappoint yeah. your mother, but with a, with a therapist, you can sit and be yourself and, and not be in judgment. And at least for me, that's a, an incredibly, powerful, powerful experience. And yeah, I guess it speaks a lot to, it's, it's uh, authentic. Kind of... And also, and as you're talking, isn't it also so pure to not have to posture to not have to ask, Oh gosh, I've been talking about myself for 20 minutes. Now I have to give 20 minutes for you. It's just so pure too, right? There's, it's so pure. There's no posturing. There's no, I have to wear this hat or be this person. Uh, it's just so organic. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. Um, Thank you. That that actually helps crystallize my thinking of it because like so it's so easy to get lost in the words and the terms like therapy, cognitive behavioral, dialectical behavioral therapy, and yeah. it, it loses meaning. But at the end of the yeah. day, it's really about totally. having an opportunity to really be yourself and without fear of judgment or, or shame or anything along those lines. Um, yeah. I have a I have a long thing I, I wrote down and I'm going to read it because I think it's actually um, really relevant and I'd really like to dive into it. Um, but I want to sort of articulate it in, in the way that um, I think I can most effectively communicate it, which is a couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine uh, posted something on Facebook that was critical of the state of Israel and the situation with the Palestinians. My instinct when I saw this was that his posts, that he didn't really know what he was talking about. And truthfully, neither did I. So I started to read up on on Israel, the formation of his, Israel, the history of Israel. Even though I'm Jewish, I should know this stuff. I, I don't really. Um, and what I found was fascinating. And, and I don't propose to engage in a debate about Israel and the Middle East conflict or anything along those lines. But what it did reveal to me that it was almost impossible for anyone who's non-Jewish, I think, to write accurately about the Jewish experience or Israel, because almost all modern Western history has been informed by anti-Semitism. You know, if you think about the core of the Bible, uh, blaming Jews for social ills is literally the central theme of it. You know, if you think about the New Testament in, in some ways, and certainly I'm not accusing every Christian or every person who's read the Bible as being an anti-Semitic, but literally no one in the modern Western world since 2000 years ago hasn't been taught that narrative. And from an early age, it can't help but affect someone's worldview. 
The reason I raise this is because it reminded me of a podcast I heard about uh, one of the fathers of modern conversion therapy for gay men who didn't want to be gay, who initially argued uh, that he had no opinion on homosexuality, but who was he to decide whether a gay man should have access to conversion therapy or not? Uh, truthfully, it was an argument that resonated with me in, initially, and like, who am I to judge what a, a person wants uh, until this particular doctor realized that at least to this point in humanity, there could be no gay man who could truly make that decision freely and of his own volition because of the eons of shame and degradation and ridicule that have been borne by the gay community in many ways, similar to the Jewish experience. Um, you know, if, if true suffering is the source of true art, maybe it's no wonder that so many gay Jews are so prominent in Hollywood. But, <laughs> but seriously, it made me realize that on a deeply personal and spiritual level, I have really no idea what it's like to be a gay man in this world. And I would love it if you could try to articulate really on, on the very subtle, subtle levels, like those emotional levels, what what it's been like, you know, growing up, particularly, and I didn't realize that you were of uh, partly Asian heritage as well, where I think, you know, the, the perspectives on it are probably even more severe than in the West, which aren't necessarily that friendly, certainly friendlier than they have been. I mean, I think it's better than it's ever been, but still probably miles and miles to go. So I know that's a really, really tough question, but it's a, it's a genuine question that I've had for a long time. That, that's really it. It's like, I'm starting to appreciate on a, on a personal level in a very different way that the world we live in and my experience by virtue of growing up Jewish is actually different. And my worldview is different and how people treat me is different. And I, I was really curious to, if, if you could try to articulate what it's like, you know, uh, being a gay man, um, because that's something I really don't understand. Um, and yeah. I think it's really important as we continue to advance the dialogue around any any minority, any differences, any way you want to articulate how people are different, that people have an understanding. You know, this comes down to the the essence of what trauma-informed care is, which is like, I really don't know what it's like to be in your shoes. Mm -hmm. um, and if we can get better at sharing what it's like on a deeply personal level, then it's going to help bridge that divide. Um, so it's it's a hard question, but I, I thought there's no one in the world better equipped, I think, to try to answer that. I love deep questions. And I love from a Jewish man to a Asian gay man, you know, having this deep conversation, you know, for me, it's really interesting. And I'm going to talk to you about a movie I saw a very pop culture movie, Crazy Rich Asians. And I was in the movie theater and I realized that that was the first time I was seeing Asian men portrayed in a way that was not the dominant narrative. And he was a sex symbol. And I realized, oh, right. All of the things that I've seen my entire life were telling me something about myself and gay men as well. Right. So it, it's so interesting when we go back, you know, you know, you got into this question by talking about these narratives and the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves, which is formed by society stories, stories from everything from the Bible to crazy rich Asians, right? And of course, with COVID, crimes against Asian people, hate crimes have gone way up. Uh, it, it's so interesting, I thought, living in West Hollywood, which is sort of this gay mecca in the United States, uh, that things were getting better and I was okay. And then one time I was sitting in the middle of West Hollywood, uh, with a friend of mine and we were just enjoying our dinner and we heard this car screech and somebody 
rolled the window down, hurled this huge rock. It flew by my face. It missed us, but it shattered. We were sitting right. We were sitting outside in the first uh, table right in front of this big window, and it shattered the window. And it, it's funny because those experiences tell you, oh, right. I, there are people who don't like me because who I am. And these narratives, on a even a subtle level, even for me, they do change the way I feel about myself. What do I tell myself, right? And so it's been interesting in these, you know, in trauma, we talk about the big T traumas and the little T. So, you know, for me, was having a rock thrown at my head a, a big T trauma? It was probably, you know, more like a small T trauma. Had it actually hit me, it would have been probably more in the category of a big T trauma. But it's interesting because it has to go back to the beginning. It has to almost be a reset and a blank slate and the divide and the conflict of me versus you, or I'm of this culture, I'm of this religion, I am of this nationality, I'm a Palestinian, I'm a gay man, I'm, is, I'm Israeli, I, I'm Israeli American, you know, it's, a, it's all of these divisions. And for me, the work in psychedelic assisted psychotherapy has really helped me to not only put down and shut down or dim the volume and the colors of my own ego, but I think egos in general. And if separateness is the core issue that we are dealing with, do I think that because of that, that psychedelic assisted psychotherapy could heal divides in families where you have like a left and a right, uh, you know, a Biden supporter and a Trump supporter, or, you know, a gay Asian man and a, uh, you know, white straight man like you and, and, and looking that we have a lot more in common than we do the things that set us apart. You know, it's, it's interesting because it does affect us, even if you don't realize it. Totally. I appreciate you saying that. And, and two thoughts. One is, it's interesting that having a rock thrown at your head, you identified as a small T trauma. I couldn't help but feel like it's a small T trauma for you because that was only one of mm -hmm. a series of experiences that you've had that I would not have um, as, as a straight man, right? And so it got diminished because it's like, oh, yeah, it's like it's not okay, but yep. – this is the world we live in as, as a gay man. So this is what I have to endure. So, okay, fine. Um, and, uh, and you know, it's, it's, it's shocking and it's terrible that if that happened to me, I'd probably be much more of a trauma because I'm not as used to it. Maybe I am because, you know, I've had pennies thrown at me as a Jew, but uh, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and then, you know, the, the power of, of, of psychedelics to really kind of get at breaking those divides. And, you know, I, and I, I really struggle having now have kids myself and seeing them run around. And, you know, you look at using the, the Israeli-Palestinian equation or any kind of Middle East terrorist equation. It doesn't, doesn't matter. You look at those children and those children all evolve almost identically you know they all go through those stages of learning to walk learning to talk um you know those stages of asking really annoying questions over and over <laughs> and over again and all that kind of yeah. stuff and it's like that is literally a universally common experience of having children you know yeah. how can anyone after watching that and witnessing that firsthand ever look at you know, a gay man or, or an Asian man or a, a Muslim, you know, someone of Muslim descent or anything along those lines and be like, oh yeah, we're really different. I, I hate you. It just, it, it 
boggles my mind. Uh, but then you get into the generational trauma, which seems to be more and more something that's validated by science. You know, this is yeah. the epigenetics of, of what comes through. And, and you know, it's, it's super exciting and powerful that psychedelics seem to be able to help people unpack some of that generational trauma as well and, and let it go. It really is, you know, I think quite, quite magical for lack of a better word in, in, in my mind. Yeah, it's interesting. The cherry blossom study is one of my favorite studies and looking at how through epigenetic expression that generational trauma can be passed down through this way. So, you know, I uh, was just in a session two days ago with a, she's the granddaughter of a Holocaust survivor. And we were talking about generational trauma. And, you know, I've worked with lots of Jewish people who have relatives who survived the Holocaust. And isn't it so interesting that, and if people don't know what the study is, they basically in a, a laboratory, it was uh, the smell of cherry blossoms and giving animals an electric shock. And they found, and of course we know uh, in psychology what that does in the brain, right? If you get a shock and it's paired with the smell and every time you smell this, you're getting a shock and what that does. But it was interesting, I forget if it was rats or mice, but it wasn't just the children but the grandchildren of those rats or mice that also feared cherry blossoms. So isn't it fascinating that if you uncover, so I'm gonna make a little bit of a theoretical jump that I, I don't know if some of my colleagues are gonna like, if you see something in a psychedelic journey, is it possible uh, that you have some generational trauma that you're not consciously aware of? Well, I think that cherry blossom study showed that maybe there is something so, um, you know, woo woo and mystical about that. And, you know, why do I have a, you know, obviously some people have a fear of something and we see clearly the root of that. You know, I got trapped in an elevator. I have a fear of elevators. What if you were never trapped in elevators? What if you just have this paralyzing fear of something or relationships, but you had a really good, healthy, secure attachment with your caretakers? Where does that come from? It's interesting that it goes to this very sort of spiritual um, generational route that I think we all in our culture right now need to heal and you know it's I have a lot of healing to do myself you know growing up after my parents got divorced we moved to Ohio which is where my mom was from and there was a lot of shame being one of the only non-white kids in this neighborhood in the school and I really had to work through that you know and it really affected the stories that I told myself and my self-worth and my lovability and all these things you know so do I have trauma from that absolutely I do you know and then having a disabled brother you know so able-bodied versus uh, disabled I feel like I grew up in this family where it's like oh okay great so I know that I'm, I knew I was gay by the time I was probably nine or ten and I'm an Asian guy in an all-white neighborhood and now I have a brother with a disability and the stigma of, you know, able-bodied versus disability. I feel like I'm almost this uh, triple <laughs> minority. And, and so I, I, but that gives me this really unique perspective in, in being able to relate to people, even if their story and their heritage is very different. I, I feel like the feelings of shame or hatred or anger are universal. I, I understand it. I felt it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it's, I, I like to think about genetics, genetics, people think about your genetics as, as a roadmap of, of the past, right? You know, this is where you came from. We can track that you're, you know, Asian, that you have, you know, whatever the BRAC2 gene and all these kind of things. Yeah. Um, 
but I find it much more informative and constructive and instructive to think about your genetics as a roadmap of the future. You know, we talk about how there's all this junk DNA, but it's not actually junk DNA. It's just DNA that's not being utilized. But we do know, at least on some level, that mindset, attitude, outlook affects the genes that get expressed, right? So um, to the extent that you experience trauma and you, and you don't heal it, naturally the genes that are going to get expressed based on that worldview are going to be the ones that show up in your system and, and show up in your kids. It's, it's just kind yeah. of logical. It makes it a much more intuitive, thoughtful, I think, exercise. Now, this is not based on any clinical research by any stretch of the imagination, but my, my instinct says that more and more we're going to see that genetics and all the work we're doing with psychedelics are actually very deeply interrelated. Oh, a hundred percent. I, you know, I do a lot of genetic testing on my patients. I'm also trained as a functional nutritionist. So, you know, this functional medicine lens is really interesting and genes are not your destiny. So, you know, one, isn't it so interesting that if you have a copy of the quote, Alzheimer's gene, APOE4, that there was actually a reason that that developed. So if you have increased inflammation before the age of antibiotics or maybe even before the age of shoes and, and you step on something and you have more inflammation, that means that you are more likely to survive that infection than somebody who doesn't have it. Of course, in the modern world, that sets us up for um, an increased risk of dementia, but it's not about your past. It's about your future. It is about, okay, if I have this gene, XYZ, this is what I need to do. I need to watch my glycemic index, my fasting insulin. I need to watch my um, HSCRP, uh, which is a measure of inflammation systemic in the body, both the body and the brain. But isn't it also so interesting that this functional genetic and epigenetic sort of testing that we do and we go to the root cause, it is theoretically to me in line with what we are doing at Field Trip because it's, it's a root cause oriented approach. You know, a lot of the people that I work with, it is a relief. I, I remember one of my patients cried when he saw, oh, I'm not just a weak person. You can see the depression in my brain genes. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's, it's here. Look, look here at this part. Do you see this? And he cried, you know, this, this straight white man, um, successful and, you know, intelligent. And it was the, oh, oh, here's a reason and this is what I can do about it. It empowers people, it's not scary. It is something that you can handle. It is something that you can actually change and if you go to the root, go back to the root, I think you know all functional medicine practitioners, their mindset is very similar to psychedelic practitioners because we're trying to figure out not the symptoms, not on the surface, not medicating the symptoms, but how do we go back to the root and see, oh, okay, I have the MTHFR gene, which increases my risk for depression. Therefore, um, this is going to affect the way I need to increase certain methylated B vitamins or B vitamins or folate in my diet. And how does that integrate with what we are doing? It, it, it's all the same sort of lens. 100%. I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer. Um, I try to believe it on a deeply spiritual level. Sometimes it's just intellectual, but on, on the capacity of reality creation, which is, uh, and, and we can talk about the science of it, and I know I've touched on it before, but you know we're all choosing everything that we experience. And whether you believe that on a factual basis or not, what it does in power is it makes you no longer a victim. You're no longer a victim of your circumstances. On some cognitive level, you've chosen your circumstances as hard as they may be and as traumatic as they may be because there's something to come of that. And when you take that on, uh, then you're empowered you have the choice to affect how you evolve. Um, 
and I don't, I don't know if, if you, uh, if you perceive the world through that lens, but, uh, curious, you know, if you were going to reflect on that about why you chose to be uh, a gay Asian man, uh, with a disabled brother in the state of Ohio, which, you know, I'd probably argue is just by virtue of being in Ohio is potentially a traumatic experience period. <laughs> um, it was you know, for me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it, does anything come up for you as to like why maybe you chose that path on a, on a spiritual level? It, it does. You know, I, I know that the adversity, the struggles, the, having to beat to my own drum. All of that affected my path, who I am. I am stronger for it. It allowed me or forced me to my knees at certain points. Um, and that struggle, and you know, you talk about this shift from victim to survivor or empowered warrior. It is the, okay, this is my, this is the circumstances, my identity that the world has given me or the world sees me as. And, you know, I think it is up to you if you get a genetic report back and you have anything from, you know, ancestry and it's like, oh, okay, this is where my ancestors were from or a specific gene like the Alzheimer's gene. It's the, oh, this is empowering. There's so much that I can do. And I am not you know, my father and I are actually quite different. I am not my father. I am not my mother. You know, do I have some DNA that's similar? Yes. Uh, but do we all have this, this path? And I knew, I applied to two colleges when I was in high school. One was in New York City and one, one was in Los Angeles. And then I visited both and I decided that it was going to be USC for me. Um, so it, and I just knew that I had to find my own path. And it was scary. I remember flying by myself on TWA in 1997 from Detroit airport, that was the closest airport to us, to JFK with a four hour layover with my bags flying from JFK to Los Angeles, taking a super shuttle to my dorm. And it was scary, you know? Sure, um, yeah. And, and, but everything that I've done in my life, I have forged my own path. I have said, um, I said to my friend one time when I was, I think, 21 years old, I said, I really want to help people. I was I volunteered for so many different organizations in college and high school and I said, I want to help people for a living. I want, you know, the compassion that I had to develop through my experiences as a child. I want to do something with that. I don't want to go to a 9 to 5 and maybe volunteer like once a month. I I want that to be my bread and butter, my life, my calling. Um but I also told him, oh and by the way, I think Maybe I want to be like the young Dr. Phil one day. I have no idea how I'm going to make it happen. But I, that's, I, I want to be like the nicer, warmer, transformative, you know, integrative, whole person model kind of guy. Not the guy who yells at people to try to get people to change. And sure enough, the universe conspired in my favor because that guy, so that was, I met, he was my friend when I was around 20. Um, he became, he got a, a national contract and he was a national reporter for ABC and moved to New York. I, I didn't see him for like 10 years. I run into him at the gym in Los Angeles. And he said, oh, didn't you? Oh, hey, man, I haven't seen you for 10 years. Didn't you like say you want to like be the young Dr. Phil or something? Or did you ever like go to grad school? And I said, actually, I just finished my doctorate. I finished my master's. I'm in private practice. And he's like, man, I, that's incredible, man. You just really went for it, huh? My, I said, I guess I did. And the next day he set me up uh, with a meeting with his agent and she signed me. And three weeks later I went on an audition, an audition. And then I had, you know, a couple auditions, then a screen test for the show on TLC. That was a hit in the UK. And I, I got it. And it was the, look at how, you know, if, 
if luck is, oh gosh, what's a quote, where preparation meets opportunity. You know, I can kind of look back on a spiritual path from my brother's stroke, growing up in Ohio, leaving, um, getting the scholarship to go to USC, um, you know, saying I wanted to be the young Dr. Phil and I had to believe in myself, but I was the master of that destiny. Did, were, were there some intersections where the universe was, in my belief, conspiring in my favor? Yes, but I had, to, I had to step up to the plate. You know, to say, this is what I want to do, and I'm, I'm going to fight for it. I fought for my job at Field Trip. <laughs> I said, this, <laughs> this, this is where I want to work. I'm Nobody approached me. I said, this is what I'm going to do. This is where I want to be. You know, so, yeah, it is empowering. It is. Yeah, I, I mean, you, you talked about it the, as the intersection of, of luck and, and, sorry, what was it, opportunity? Um, yeah. And preparation, yeah, I, I, I call that magic, right? Like that is, yeah. you know, and I've been trying to articulate um, a more functional definition of magic. And, and Dr. Mark Short, who's also at Field Trip, mm. I think, articulated it in a great way, which is uh, magic is creating something in the future, right? Mm. Creating something that you want that's not immediately present. It's the future. And, and magic is the energy that connects the present to that successful moment. So, you know, that that's magical that you had that interaction. That's pure reality creation in, in my mind. Uh, it doesn't happen immediately, but if you keep your mind to it and, um, it, you know, it'll happen. And, and I have a sort of similar experience where I was a lawyer, I was working at BioVail, a uh, pharmaceutical company, which is fine. I didn't really like it. I remember watching the MTV movie award or uh, video awards and, uh, lying on the couch and I was like, you know, fuck it. I want to work in the music industry. And I didn't know how I was doing it, but the next day I emailed everybody I knew who worked in the music industry or was peripherally related to it uh, and like just started trying to make it happen. And lo and behold, nothing happened initially. And then randomly out of the blue, like three months later, there's a job posting uh, at MTV Canada being represented by the exact recruiter who put me in the job I was in at that point who had a, you know, a great relationship with. And it all kind of happened. And, and I still re recall that moment of like, yeah, I, I made that happen. You know, some may call bullshit yeah. and just luck and all that kind of stuff. But uh, you can't convince me that that was just a function of circumstance, that it was, it was something much more magical quite literally magic, magic. um I'm with dr short tomorrow i'm gonna i'm gonna tell him how much i love that quote <laughs> <laughs> awesome i've got some other questions for you so one of the things i've been curious about again not being a therapist but obviously working very close with therapists what is different uh when you sit with someone in conventional therapy as opposed to sitting with them in ketamine assisted therapy or, or psychedelic therapies like how how do you show up differently what what do you do differently how do you quote unquote hold space as, as the term of art is often used a lot of the tricks tips protocols that you've learned you can integrate however i would say it is extremely different it is more intimate it is more profound uh, there are moments of deep connection in talk therapy that i sometimes have that you know and it develops right that intimacy but when you are lying on the floor with somebody or in one of our zero gravity chairs but i was with a patient the other day she really wanted to be on the floor and we have you know these great double mattresses so we're literally lying on the floor i'm sitting on the floor she's lying and she's in the fetal position and she reaches for my hand with this look of awe and vulnerability and she looked like a, a seven-year-old or maybe even like a four-year-old child just sort of i could tell that there was things that she was experiencing in that moment 
but also just so happy that she was having them. And I knew non-verbally, uh, because I work primarily, I would say non-verbally, I, I feel like I'm very intuitive with the people that I work with. I knew that she just, there was something about holding her hand and she held my hand and she didn't let it go for about five minutes. That is so different than the way most therapists are trained. And time goes by like this in a ketamine assisted therapy session. You know, I, I was in the room with her for hours and it's, it's, it's different. It's more intimate. Uh, you know, therapists are taught not to touch, you use a lot of touch. It is going back to the, um, to the core, to the root. It is opening people up. They are raw, they're vulnerable. And yes, you can access that with traditional psychotherapies, but this just goes so much further. And it also is, you have no idea what to expect. I can also say that um, every patient really responds so differently. So it's also a little bit um, exciting and surprising when you're doing this work because you really, I mean, I remember going back to my Austin training. There was, you know, it's interesting because it's basically a group model where, you know, 15 of the doctors are having the experience and the other 15 are acting as the therapist sitting next to the person. And it's so interesting that the universe conspired. And, you know, our head of group therapy at Field Trip, Tatiana, was the person who um, was my sitter. Um, uh, and I sat for her on days three and four. And, you know, looking around the room when I was Tatiana's therapist, I could see that one person is very verbal and yelling and re-experiencing a trauma. Another person's laughing. Another person didn't say a word for two hours and is just sitting there motionless. So it's also quite surprising. You never know what they're going to say on the other side. There are so many raw emotions. There are so many. It's like, wow, all of the stuff that I think therapists are hungry for. The Wow, I, I want to go back to the core issues. I want to use sort of this downward error approach to drill down and just keep asking, where does that come from? Well, where does that come from? Imagine if you had a, a, a process that would sort of just be years in the making, you know, five years, or, you know, if you could go on a year long silent retreat, what if you had a medicine that could help you to access those parts of the brain, our heart? Um, that's what it is. So it's, man, it's fun. I mean, when I, when I wake up and I drive to Santa Monica and I have a session, um, you know, and a lot of my days are split Well, I'll have, you know, a couple of ketamine assisted psychotherapy sessions and then a preparation session and then a standard talk therapy session. I, I am the most excited by far when I'm driving a field trip. I can tell you that it is so exciting. It is so profound. The work is so deep. So if that's you, um, or if you're a patient and, and that's the kind of work that sounds exciting to you, that's what we do. I could, uh, I mean, not everybody has the benefit of, of watching this interaction, but I could actually see your energy change when you talked about how exciting it was. Like there was a part yeah. of you, like that inner nine-year-old of like just pure, you know, ecstatic joy kind of started to come out. It's, it's really cool to actually watch that happen as you were talking about this. Oh, I, I just got chilled <laughs> when you said that. And I don't know, I, I feel like the little boy in me is alive when I'm doing this work. And that's, that's really special to me. I, I, it's really special, you know. I, wow, what you just said actually made me tear up. And it's, it's, it's really, we all have to take care of our inner child, you know. And there's something in my inner child that was called to be a healer and a helper. And that's profound. And if you're somebody who had trauma and sexual or physical abuse when you were a kid, and I can be there to hold your hand through that, that is, that's like, that's the stuff of life, right? That's like the while wow, my life meant something, you know, like I'm doing something every day that I get up in the morning and I'm like, 
wow, I can't believe I get to do this work, you know? Oh, that's amazing. It's, 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 it's a theme that's been coming up for me recently. It's like, how do you, how do you live in the passion? How do you tap into like that passion? You know, it just, it just came out of you. I, I witnessed it coming out of you right now. And it's like, it's so easy to get caught up in the mundane aspects of life of driving to work and paying taxes and doing your bills and all this kind of stuff. But how do you make sure you find, and, and some of it can be from the child, right? Like that level of exuberance, but that's exactly kind of what everyone was talking about to me before, which is, how do you remember that? How do you reintegrate that? Not being a child, but how do you reintegrate that feeling? Because it's a wonderful feeling. It's a passionate feeling. It's a powerful feeling. And it gets you out of bed in the morning. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that's the, the exercise that, um, that we're all going through and on many levels. Um, Amen. Well said. Well said. Thank you. Uh, I have two more questions and then I'm going to let you get back to your life. But um, if there was, if, if you could have people come away from this podcast, knowing just one thing about psychedelics or psychedelic assisted therapies, what would it be? It's going to be everything that you thought it was going to be and nothing that you thought it was going to be. (laughs) (laughs) And, And no amount of literature or Googling can prepare you for what you're going to encounter. And that is part of the magic. Well said. Um, and and this is part of the exercise, and I'm asking this particularly for some of the stuff we're doing with our app trip. Um, but if I'm a person just starting with psychedelic-assisted therapy or maybe just trying psychedelics for the first time you know, on my own, what advice would you give specifically? How would you set an attention, intention? Uh, what's your favorite music to listen to while having a psychedelic experience? And uh, as a functional nutritionist, which I didn't know about you, what would you suggest people eat before and after? Like, what it, what is the sort of meat and potatoes knowledge of what I should know before I get into this from your perspective? Yeah, so there's actually a lot of research on this. Uh, well, maybe not a lot, but at least a little published research. And the cleaner you are, and, and the more um, in the ketamine papers, which is this book in this collection, there's one of the researchers, I think, talking about how he suggested before these journeys to go plant based and, you know, at least for a couple of days. And the more you really prepare yourself and are sacred with this time, the greater the potential for you to realize your intention. So, you know, if you can make this time in a space of healing, um, I was just on the phone with somebody who was referred to me who um, may start our Uh, just a a patient who went through something. um, And I really gave her this advice to, to make this time intentional and to make this healing be about you. And the more we do that, the more we are conscious with our eating, um, the more we are um, really setting a beautiful intention, the more this medicine has the potential to work, you know, so I, in my most recent uh, session myself, I had a much lower dose uh, and it felt like a high dose because I think I'm eating cleaner. Um, I have addressed my genetic mutations. You know, I take a methylated folate for my MTHFR mutation. And what's really interesting is that 25 milligrams IM felt to me like a high dose experience. (laughs) And Uh, somebody said to me, it's like, well, that says something about the way that you've prepared yourself, right? And and we know that, that uh, the cleaner you are, the more you set your intention, spiritually, emotionally, moving the body, how do you then connect it to the future and creating more magic? And, you know, 
it's interesting talking about behavioral activation and the integration of CBT with psychedelics because I think in many ways people have that awe or that sense of connectivity and that allows them to, you know, when you began this podcast talking about the, the relationship between a feeling of awe and improved interpersonal dynamics, it's the, oh, there's something about that that translates into this very real world stuff. And if you want to quit smoking, you've been smoking for 20 years, you know, I could tell you from a scientific point of view why, you know, enhanced neuroplasticity uh, as a downstream result of ketamine and glutamate and the NMDA receptor, how that maybe makes, you know, theoretically uh, behavioral change more likely. But it's also so, you know, that's, that's boring. Let's talk about the spirituality. Let's talk about how that feeling of being connected makes me excited to be in this garage that my soul is in for this very short time and to do the stuff that you should do that we all know we should do. It's more the, well, why am I going to do that? Why am I going to get off my butt if I'm 300 pounds or, you know, my labs are bad or I'm smoking every day or I'm drinking every day or I'm in this toxic relationship that's abusive. You know, it's the, oh, right. My life is important. It's important. And that is, is why I think we have these outcomes that are just, you just, you, can you study them? Yes. But on another level, it's like when I read these studies, it's like, it's also the, you lose the, the richness of the individual experience that, you know, the N of one, if you do the study on yourself and you come to field trip, uh, the, the study that you do on yourself will probably be nothing like the, the literature because you're having this really profound experience yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to ask one question, uh, just beyond which is if you could send a message to yourself one year from now what would you want to say oh gosh Uh, i think i'd want to say um i hope you are continuing to live a life every day where you want to get out of bed um, and with purpose so keep on keeping on and this is just the beginning and if you have days where you feel like your dream is impossible or there's some new um, you know, related chapter that's even greater than what you're doing now, just look back on everything that you have accomplished and it'll give you the confidence to do what you need to do to create that next great subchapter of what you're doing. Awesome. I couldn't end on a better note. So thank you so much, Mike, for being a part of this. Sorry so much for the technical issues, um, but I think it turned out in the end okay. And uh, if I have to go back and record some questions, we can do that. That's the magic of editing. But uh, this was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for making the time. Thank you for being part of Field Trip. Thank you for not taking no as an answer uh, (laughs) and and setting out because... uh, you know, you've been an incredible asset uh, and an incredible friend uh, to, to, to me, to, to the company, to the work we're doing, which is much more important than either uh, me or the company itself. Um, so thank you for being part of it. It's my true honor. Thank you for asking great questions and thank you for changing thousands of lives with this really noble company. Thank you. Tom Robbins once wrote, Don't let yourself be victimized by the age you live in. It's not the times that will bring us down any more than it's society. When you put the blame on society, then you end up turning to society for the solution. It's not men who limit women. It's not straights who limit gays. It's not whites who limit blacks. What limits people is lack of character. 
What limits people is that they don't have the fucking nerve or imagination to star in their own movie, let alone direct it. Now, one can certainly and validly argue some of those statements, particularly about one group limiting another, but the point I'm trying to make is about character. And if there is one person we've had on this podcast who has no shortage of nerve or imagination to star in their own movie, it's Mike, who through grit, determination, a great attitude, has taken what could have been challenging circumstances and created magic. So if you want to know what I think you should take away from this podcast, it's as follows. One, don't be afraid to star in your own movie. Mike is and will continue to do so. Two, if there's anything in your life that you should concern yourself with, it's magic. And three, if you're exploring psychedelics for the first time, remember, it's going to be everything and nothing like you imagined. As you know, we've recently launched a new segment which enables people like you who are listening to send in questions either via email or through SpeakPipe. Uh, And last week we got a couple of great questions of which I'm going to answer one, which was, Hey Ronan, I've heard you say that every day is a field trip. So what is one thing you've taken away from a trip that you've integrated into your every day? And if there is one thing that I've taken away from a trip that I try to integrate into my every day, is that every day can actually be a field trip, meaning that we are wholly and exclusively responsible for our own emotions. So next time you're out there and you feel happy or angry or sad, instead of blaming someone if it's a negative emotion or giving them responsibility if it's a positive emotion, stop and take a moment and that recognize that what you're feeling is exclusively yours. You're the author of it. A person, a person's actions could trigger an event that led you to respond in a certain way, but that response is always your choice. And that is one of the most powerful things I've ever taken away from psychedelics. It's one of the most powerful things I've taken away from all the work I've ever done is that we are the authors of our own fortune or misfortune. And the more you accept that, the more power you have, the more power you have, the more you have the capacity to make of life what you want it. Thank you for listening to Field Tripping, a podcast that's dedicated to exploring psychedelic experiences and their ability to affect our lives. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. Until next time, stay curious, breathe properly, and remember, every day is a field trip if you let it be one. Field Tripping is created by Ronan Levy. Our producers are Conrad Page, John Savak, and associate producer is Sharon Bella. Special thanks to Cast Media, and of course, many thanks to Dr. Michael Dow for joining me today. To learn more about Mike's work, check out drmikedow.com or follow him on Instagram, Dr. Mike Dow, in both cases, not spelling the whole word doctor, just DR. Finally, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and sign up for our newsletter at fieldtripping.fm or wherever you get your podcasts. Or leave us a voicemail at speakpipe.com slash fieldtripping or send us an email to fieldtripping at castmedia.com. Please note that Cast Media is spelled K-A-S-T-M-E-D-I-A. Thanks for listening. <laughs>